probably over a thousand aerobatic flights in that airplane, right? Like I know the airplane pretty well, but it doesn't matter. We go through the same process every year as if you're coming to a new aircraft because the only way to train proficiency is to be disciplined. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada with your host, Warwick Patterson. Welcome to episode eight, as we kick off the fall season of the Flying BC podcast. I hope you've been able to enjoy a summer of flying adventures yourself, even if they had to be a little more restrained than normal. I just wanted to thank all the COPA members in BC and the Yukon who voted in the recent by-election. I'm honored to be the new regional director, and I'm excited to get cracking in the role. This is the first of two episodes with Jeff Ladder. Jeff is an airline captain and an airshow pilot, and he's incredibly passionate about aviation and sharing that love of flying. Earlier this summer, we talked for well over an hour, and as you'll hear, speaking with Jeff is like drinking from a fire hose of knowledge and stories. So I wanted to give the discussions its full due. In this first part, Jeff talks about how he got into aviation and his path into aerobatics. And then we deep dive into the airshow world, his preseason preparations, how you build a show, and the business side of things. Jeff is super diligent in his preparation, and a lot of that detail comes out in this discussion. After we recorded this, he actually had an emergency aborted takeoff in the Yak, and all that training paid off. He's got the full video debrief of that and more on his Jeff Ladder Airshow's YouTube channel. It's the perfect complement to this podcast, and I'll include it in the show notes. You'll also hear me mention a video featuring Kevin Mayer and his airshow checkout in the Harvard. That's also now up on the Flying BC YouTube channel. So settle in. This is part one with Jeff Ladder. Well, thanks for joining me, Jeff. And uh, I've wanted to chat with you for a while since I started doing this, because uh, you, you have an interesting career and... Um, I've seen you at air shows flying Nancy the Nanchang, and you just got a, a new Yak 50. Yak 50, yeah. And um, yeah, so could you just tell us kind of how you got started in aviation? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, so I I didn't come from a family of civilian pilots, but my grandfather was in the Royal Air Force during the Second World War as part of Bomber Command and a Lancaster Squadron. And I spent most of my childhood uh, sitting on his lap while he smoked a pipe, telling stories about the airplanes and about mostly about the airmen, actually, not so much about the airplanes, but about the airmen and the people that he met along his journey. And there was a museum in Ottawa where I grew up, the National Aviation Museum. So when he would come to visit from Kingston, we would often end up at the museum and I would go around the bellies of airplanes. And so I just had an interest in aviation right from the get-go. Um, I don't, he didn't fly uh, after the war or anything like that. My parents don't fly. He was really my only access to it, but it was just always something I was very passionate about. I mean, I guess, of course, as a kid, you know, you, you watch in my generation, you know, it was Top Gun. And so obviously I had dreams of launching off of aircraft carriers and an F-14 and shooting down MiG-28s and that kind of a thing. Uh, but I also equally had a passion for the history of airplanes. Uh, not necessarily all war history. I, I do tend to read more about warbirds, but all vintage aviation is very interesting to me. And I always had a passion and wanted to find a way to, to get involved with that. But not having anybody or knowing anybody that was doing it as a young kid was really difficult. Unfortunately for myself, 
and maybe fortunate actually, because I kind of think things all kind of work out the way they do um, for the for the reason that they do. Um, I made a lot of bad decisions as a young man, and that basically prevented me from uh, being able to do any post-secondary education, like a higher education, like university or college. And that basically eliminated any eliminated any chance of me, you know, ever going to the Air Force to become an officer, let alone get to go fly some fast jets. But I always kept that interest in aviation. So I, uh, I was kind of floundering, if I was going to be honest, as a young man. I kind of was aimless. I loved aviation. I wasn't hanging out with necessarily the right people. And I was at a coffee shop before my 20th birthday. And I met this random guy at Tim Hortons, and he was listening to me talk to my friend, and I think he'd had enough of what he thought I was saying. And looking back, I probably wasn't saying anything appropriate. And he said, you know, there's two types of people in this world. There's the kind of people who work Monday to Friday so that they can have a freedom on only two days of the week. The other type of people live a life doing something that they're passionate about and do something that you love. The money will follow, but do something you love first. And I have to be honest, when I first heard that, I didn't think a lot of it. But, you know, as it sat in over the next few days, uh, it really came came to be that I decided that I wasn't sure how I was going to do this, but this is something I wanted to do. So for my 20th birthday, my parents gave me a gift certificate. They would give you like a 30-minute introductory flight. Uh, I think it came with a Cessna 150 commuter pilot operating handbook and the quintessential book the from the ground up, right, that we most of us have all learned. I still look yeah. in that book from time to time. And so I went out to the Ottawa Flying Club and I went up for that first flight uh, to do flight training and I, I never looked back. I should say for my 12th birthday, my dad had a colleague. He had a uh, Stinson 108, which is a vintage tailwheel airplane. His was a 1948. I guess you could say I was hooked into vintage aviation right away. But for my 12th birthday, um, my parents had arranged this guy to take me up for a ride in that airplane. And I always joke that I went up for a flight into the sky that day and never really came back down, but I think that's really true. And uh, unfortunately, in my teenage years and my, my earlier, late teens anyways, I really moved away from having the opportunity to do that. So just after my 20th birthday, I went out to the Ottawa Flying Club and I started training there. Um, I decided that uh, Ottawa probably wasn't the best place for me to be. And so I ended up going out to Winnipeg to do training. And it was while I was there working on my commercial license, my multi-engine rating and my instrument rating, that I had my first opportunity to fly aerobatics. And uh, I had wanted to be punching holes through the sky the whole time I was in that Cessna 150 and 172. I mean, I could, I just wanted to do spins and I couldn't wait to get that thing on its back. And they, the flying school, flying club in Winnipeg had a Cessna 152 aerobat, the mighty aerobat. And uh, I started training in that. And, you know, there's a lot of things actually really grateful that I learned my first aerobatics on that airplane because it's so underpowered and it has an incredibly slow roll rate. So you really had to fly the maneuvers properly or you'd run out of energy for the next maneuver. So I learned right from the get-go some pretty important skills. So I was out there. If that was my first introduction to aerobatics, it wasn't Warbirds. I still had that dream in my back of my mind. But uh, it wasn't there uh, quite yet. So luckily there was a flying uh, school in Winnipeg that also had a Cetabria and a Pitts S2B. So I started training there. I didn't do very much flying in the S2B, but I did get to train in it a little bit. And much more, of course, in the Cetabria. And uh, that's kind of that's kind of how the aerobatic thing really got uh, f firmly planted in something I wanted to do the rest of my life. Of course, I didn't have the means to do it. I was a newly graduated pilot, and shortly after I'd finished flight training, uh, September 11th happened. And as you know, they parked the airliners for a long time. Many airlines that people said wouldn't fail did fail, and the pilot hiring in North America, especially in Canada, just dried right up. 
So I had the odd flying job here and there and I flew around a little bit, but I really didn't have anything substantial to call a job until March of 2003. And that brought me to Vancouver where I was flying for a company on a Navajo. And it was while I was there in Vancouver doing training. So we were based at a YVR, Vancouver International, uh, for most of our flying, but the maintenance base at that point was still in Boundary Bay Airport. So we would go out there for training. And while I was there, I saw this Harvard parked. And I remember telling a friend of mine, I said, you know, within a week, I'm going to be up in that airplane. They said, you're crazy. That's never going to happen. And I went over and talked to this gentleman. His name is Mike Langford. And he had a T6 Harvard and a T, he had a Fennec. It's a French Air Force fighter version of the of the T-28 Trojan, and they used them in Algeria and, and Morocco, but um, he had this this Harvard, and I went up to talk to him, not to fly it, but I just wanted to learn about it, like, what? Do, how do you get into this? How did you acquire the airplane? I didn't know anything about even owning an airplane, so I wanted to pick his brain for that, and I thought for sure that that's where that conversation was going to end, but the next day he said, why don't you come out and we'll go fly, and I started flying with him in his Harvard, and eventually also with him in the T-28. And that was kind of how I got into the to the Warbirds. You know, the career, airline career, the civilian uh, career path takes us all over the place. I, I've been really lucky. I've flown through the Arctic Circle. I've had the opportunity to fly life-saving air ambulance missions for the government of Ontario and the Mitsubishi MU-2. It's primarily based in Thunder Bay, but we did forward deployments all over the province. And I also had the opportunity to do a lot of unprepared off-site landing on mountains and gravel beds and you know the stuff that uh, the gravel boy cowboy the what do they call them the gravel bar cowboys is that yeah yeah gravel bar yeah like that except for we weren't empty we were always like if I'm being honest probably 500 pounds over gross and planes weren't exactly the best maintained that was more up uh, in northern BC into the Yukon but um, you, we did a I had the opportunity to do a lot of that but that would take me away from centers where they had people with aerobatics but I always kept in contact so whenever I'd come back to the BC lower mainland or end up somewhere that had an airplane I could continue to train. And uh, to build the skill set I would one day need, need to have to be able to fly air shows and to acquire my own aircraft. And then, yeah, so I left, I left BC, was out in Ontario for a while. Um, I wanted to do international air ambulance. And my current wife, who was then my girlfriend, Lani, has told me one day that she was tired of living in places that started with fort or ended with lake. <laughs> and so she said, go get an airline job. So I got a job at, at the time was Air Canada Jazz, a wholly owned subsidiary of Air Canada. Of course, it's different now, but I went there for three years and ended up on the CRJ. And the jet time that I got there got my foot in the door to get hired at WestJet in 2010. So prior to Encore, or Swoop, or any, it was just a 737 fleet. And right. I've been there ever since then. Nice. So yeah, so that, when I finally came back to Vancouver, that's when I started looking at getting my own aircraft. Nice. It's, I didn't realize you grew up in Ottawa, but I grew up in Ottawa too. And oh, I remember right going to oh, the Christ Aviation Museum. <laughs> I remember going to that Aviation Museum before the new building was built. It was like these low hangers, just jam-packed full of like, yeah, just jam-packed yeah. full of like dusty old planes. But my dad and I used to dig our way through there and check it all out. I did the exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. I, I loved yeah. every minute in there with those old airplanes. So I guess nice. the next part of the story is like, how do I end up with a Nang Chang? So yeah, when I was so in... Yeah, so when I was in Ottawa doing my private pilot's license, I used to sit outside. I was living at my girlfriend's place at the time, and I used to sit outside. And I, there was a private pilot magazine in December of 1998, and I'd flip through the magazine probably a dozen times. And then one day, I guess the pages had been stuck together, but there was a whole article called Sleek and Spirited, and it was about these Chinese airplanes, the Nang Chang CJ-6A. And I 
that was every pilot's dream in my mind. I mean, it probably isn't, but in my mind, that was every pilot's dream. It could go 200 knots. It could pull 6G. It had a round engine. It had the partially gold wing, or at least that's what I thought it was at the time. The, you know, it had the squared off tail and the big greenhouse canopy. It was everything I ever wanted uh, in that dream of, of flight. And, uh, I, for whatever reason, I mean, why did I fall in love with my wife? I can't, you know, you, when you fall in love, you fall in love. And I fell in love with that airplane. I actually saved up to buy that airplane from that day forward. So from December of 1998 until September of 2012, when I was fortunate enough to acquire Nancy, I saved up every paycheck. Even when I had, you know, not maybe the best flying jobs, making hardly any money, I put a dollar every paycheck, no matter what into that account. And you'd be surprised how much you can save up over 14 years. But yeah. Yeah. So I was in, before I went to WestJet, we ran into these two, these two gentlemen, uh, one in particular, um, Peter Waddington and he and another gentleman, Brian Nosco are the original caretakers of Nancy, the Nang Chang. Um, they acquired the aircraft in 06. They did a two year restoration. It actually won a best in class at Oshkosh in 2008. So in 2010, we ended up running into them. And uh, I met the gentleman. I said, you're the Peter Waddington. And he was kind of starstruck. <laughs> I was the one who was starstruck. He was kind of like, what's going on here? And we uh, formed a friendship. And I started flying it just before I went to WestJet with, with them, of course. And in 2012, they were looking to move out of that aircraft to either get a different project or try something new. And I had almost what they asked for saved up. And I sent them an email and said, well, the truth is, is this is what I can offer you now, and I can pay the rest later um, as best I can. Um, and I thought for sure that they'd say, you know, thanks for the offer, Jeff, but we're looking, you know, people that are actually willing to cough it up. And they didn't. They said no to these other people, and they said yes to me. Wow. And I acquired the aircraft in September 2012. And yeah, Pete, Pete and Brian were, I will honestly say, you know, everybody has people in their lives that are instrumental in change. And I can honestly say that uh, Peter Waddington and Brian Osco are the probably two of the most significant people I've ever met in my life because that allowed me to get an aircraft that was a dream. And had I not met them, that would have never happened. Uh, it just goes to show the aviation industry and community is all about uh, relationships and paying it forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's full of that. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's the probably. I mean. Um, there's a lot of things I like about flying and like about aviation, but it is that camaraderie and it is that paying it forward that I love so much that I've benefited from in my career countless times, not just with this Nang Chang, but you know, you get a job somewhere and then your buddy's looking for a job and you, you get him a job there. And as a matter of fact, one of my closest friends who I met flying Navajos was responsible not only for my job flying the MU2 out, out of Thunder Bay doing air ambulance flying, but also was my foot in the door at WestJet. Yeah. So that's definitely part of aviation. Yeah, I see a lot of kids and people just hanging out at the airport and they get to meet people and yeah. get to fly more than they would if they were just doing their license. And Absolutely. Yeah. Eric here in Squamish like did his PPL in minimum hours because he'd probably flown 500 hours with other people by the time <laughs> he was <laughs> 17 or 18. The, that's a big part of this industry. I mean, I can't speak. I have a lot of friends that flew in the military, but I can't speak to that side of aviation. But in the civilian side of aviation, it really is a big part of it. And I do that now, you know, whenever we have young students that uh, swing by my hangar in Abbotsford, and it's fairly common to have people by the fence. Or when I'm at air shows, and actually the main reason I wanted to fly air shows is so you could have that outreach and meet these young adults that are looking at aviation as a possible career. And I've always made sure I take the extra time to spend with them and mentor them. And it's amazing, you know, that's like a small lighter flame 
when they meet you, but it turns into a pretty big blazing fire after that. And I'm really proud of some of these young, you know, young adults that I've met who've really carved out an incredible career just in the last eight years since I've met them flying air shows. It's been pretty special, but paying it forward is a huge part of part of aviation, not just in the warbirds and air shows, but just in a general sense. So how did you, obviously you bought Nancy. Did you always intend to do air shows or? No, um, no, not really. Um, I mean, I always thought air shows would be kind of neat, but I, and I always had sort of said, you know, if I ever could do this, it would be great to be able to share the airplane like that because there are not a lot of them doing it. But no, the motivation to have the Nang Chang was, was for myself. But we found that uh, by 2013, a group called the Cascade Warbirds were constantly asking for guys to come fly their, doing flybys, not an aerobatic routine, but to go to air shows. And so in 2013, we went to the Comox air show and flew there as part of the Cascade Warbirds. And I had so many more opportunities to meet so many more young adults and to share my passion for aviation and my passion for vintage airplanes and keeping these airplanes flying. Um, I decided that I would make a run at it and I've always loved aerobatics. So the two went hand in hand. So I started training uh, at the end of 2013. I started making preparations to get what's called a statement of air, a SAC card, a statement of aerobatic competency. So in air shows, there's different levels. So you start at 800 feet and you fly a number of shows and do another evaluation. And then you go down to 500 feet and start the whole process again of flying more air shows, more exams and evaluations. You go to 250 feet. And then finally, you need two evaluators uh, to become unrestricted, or people often call it a surface waiver, but it's an unrestricted air show license, essentially. Um, and there's there's more to it than, you know, to 800 and 500 and 250, you're kind of like you fly, they ask you a few questions and that's it. And when I did my surface deval, it was the two different evaluators and we were talking about mathematical calculations for density altitude on a NACA airfoil that the Nang Chang has as versus variations in Clark YH airfoils. Like it gets much more in depth and it has to because when you get to that level of air show flying, it cannot just be about, you know, you're safe to fly a loop anymore. There has to be uh, an understanding of the aerodynamic theory that's involved with that, especially uh, regarding density altitude and different airfoil types. Yeah, I've got a video I've been piecing together. I went uh, with Kevin Mayer. Oh, when he great was getting guy. His uh, evaluation done for the Harvard. Yeah, and uh, so we filmed the whole the whole sequence and the the learning process that goes along with getting those evaluations. And, yeah, it's a whole but, process to go unrestricted. It takes it takes yeah. time. It took me four. I guess three and a half to four years to do it. I did my first season at 800, next season at, you know, every season was a different level. I went yeah. un, unrestricted in 2017. Nice. So I flew a couple so, of seasons at it. But So to somebody who's flying, maybe has their PPL, um, what's the route to maybe not be becoming an airshow air, air pilot, maybe an airshow pilot or just like maybe competition aerobatics. Sure. Um, I, I'm not a, I mean, I have flown competition aerobatics in 2018. I actually took my airplane down the Nang Chang down and uh, flew a competition. Um, so there's some variation in the style of flying between the two. Mm-hmm. So competition flying is a, it's flown at a much higher altitude and much safer because of it. Um, in competition flying, generally people start at high altitude and work their way down. You can't do that in air shows because the ground or your floor is the limit. So you can't just keep using your energy like that. Uh, competition flying, you know, it's like I hate when – well, I don't hate. People don't like when I equate it to figure skating, but it's exactly the same as that. Mm-hmm. So if you're an Olympic figure skater, you're not being paid to do it likely. And it's all about technical proficiency in each individual maneuver and that's what you're judged on. But it's essentially a hobby until you make it to the Olympics. Aero, air show flying, aerobatic, is like ice capades. Um, 
there is technical requirements in there, but it's more important to have an eye appealing show than it is to have the perfect line. Right. Um, that's kind of a, people don't like that, but that is kind of true. One is, one is a technical motorsport, and the other one is a motorsport entertainment. So there's, there's a very different, uh, different thing there. If you ask your average aerobatic competition pilot to name all the gates for every maneuver for five different density altitudes that you could give them, 90% of them won't have an answer at all. And maybe a few of them have, know their entry speed and maybe a few other things. You go up and ask an airshow pilot who's unrestricted what their gates are. And I can tell you every maneuver in every gate and the range of gates and speeds and altitudes for every single maneuver I fly in that Nanjing because I don't have the luxury of coming down to 1,500 feet and calling it a day or to 500 feet and calling it a day because I'm bringing the aircraft down um, to the surface. Now we're not that I would do want to pref, preface that by saying I am not recovering vertical down maneuvers so that they recover at the ground. There's a ton of margin in there, and, yeah. and most of us do this so that yeah, it looks like we're flying down to the ground, but we could recover hundreds of feet higher if we wanted to by applying more G or changing uh, pitch rates and speed rates, which is essentially what affects the G. But the uh, we have a lot of margin there. So we recover to a different altitude at a different gate, and then we fly down to that surface. But the, the, the technical proficiency in being able to fly a perfect four-point roll in an air show is not the same criteria for flying a perfect four-point roll at a competition. But we have other things to contend with. And density altitude plays a huge role for surface flying because, again, we don't have that margin. We, already, we don't have the margin of altitude. So we need to add margins to those things, right? Because, I mean, as, as you know, in density altitude, as the temperature increases, the pressure decreases and the humidity increases, then your density altitude gets higher and higher. This, this prevents the engine from producing its full thrust in a piston-powered aircraft, but also your wing uh, generates less lift uh, capability, which means your performance margin for maneuvering the aircraft is down. And the propeller creates less thrust because it is lift. It's reducing less thrust, so you don't have... Mm-hmm. You're basically at a disadvantage on that, and so I guess uh, that kind of digressed there. But how do you how <laughs> do you how do you get into it? I think is what you're asking. Yeah, and I'll actually get you to explain gates too, because I found that interesting when I was filming with Kevin. Like I'd never sure heard that concept before. So when we enter into a maneuver, um, let's for example say that I'm going to do just a loop. There is going to be a minimum speed, and let's we're going to talk about zero gates. So when I say zero gates, I mean they're not compensated for density altitude. This would be your ice a day at sea level. So sea level, 15 degrees Celsius, uh, standard atmospheric uh, pressures and standard atmospheric humidity levels. So zero density altitude compensation. But you, every maneuver will have an entry speed uh, that's the min to enter it. And you'll have a maximum speed that you'll want to enter that too, potentially, depending on the aircraft. And so that first gate will be, and I, I never use the min speed. So let's say the minimum speed to enter a loop is 160 knots. Well, then I'm going to enter that loop with between 180 and 200 knots, because what I'm doing is I'm going to turn that energy into altitude. And altitude's buying me a way out later. That's the first gate. The first gate is the most important gate of all of your maneuvers. If you hit your speed and your target altitude that you've set out, something has to go wrong in how you fly the maneuver or mechanically in the aircraft to create a hazard where you're going to need to knock off that maneuver either at the top or if you continued the maneuver without doing it, you'd be into a problem, for example. So let's say it's 160. I'm going to enter it at 180. We're going to go around to the top of the loop 
at the top of the loop, I'm going to have a minimum altitude and a maximum speed that I want to be there. And the reason why you have a minimum altitude and a maximum speed is because if you're, if you're faster than that speed or you're lower than that altitude, you may not be able to recover at the bottom of that altitude. But believe it or not, in a loop, that's the third least important gate. That's the third gate that, of importance. But it's going to give you a check. If you've entered the speed properly, you did the proper 4G pull, for example, let's just say that's what you're using, you will arrive at either a higher altitude and a lower speed um, uh, than what the minimum would be. So for example, in my Nangcheng, if I came out of the top of the loop at 1,100 feet at like, at like 95 knots, then I could pull a constant 4G pull. It wouldn't be a perfect loop because it would look like an L, but I could do a constant 4G loop and recover 200 feet higher than where I started. But by doing a constant smooth 4G loop from 20 knots faster, I arrive at the top of that loop usually between 1,500 feet and 1,800 feet and closer to 65 knots. So I'm way above the min altitude and I'm way slower than the max speed. That allows me to finesse the maneuver down around the backside. Now, in the Nangcheng, for example, when I come through the vertical point, I know that I need to have an airspeed less than 160 knots and I need to be at an altitude 1,000 feet or higher. And if I apply the same level of pull that I had at the 4G, you won't be pulling 4G because your airspeed's lower, but that same level of rotation around that axis, I will recover at the same altitude I started at, at the basically the same speed that I started at. So cool. usually yeah. you come around there, you're like 140 knots and 1,100 feet. This allows me to build more margin by decreasing the G rate of G, which helps me fly down the maneuver as opposed to recovering to the ground. And yeah. then the last gate that I check is at the 500-foot mark. I want to be 45 degrees nose down, no faster than 180 knots at 500 feet. And that means that from there, I can actually reduce the G in an air show down to as little as 2.5 G so that I can literally be accelerating in that descent. Because the more G you apply onto a wing, the more induced drag there is, the less speed you can gain for the next maneuver. And remember, unlike a competition that has the ability to fly lower and lower or go one maneuver to the next, I have to fly a show that makes sense. And so I need to have the energy at the end of that loop to say do a hammerhead or a roll or a barrel roll or whatever the case would be, right? So those are the gates. And you have to know them for every single maneuver. And if you miss a gate, you knock off the maneuver. If something mechanical happens, you knock off the maneuver. So we do spring training. I know this is kind of getting away from how you get into your backs, but no, this is great. Yeah, just, I, I, I found it really fascinating, like watching Kevin do his evaluation and there's so much more to it than you see standing in the crowd watching. There is. Yeah. <laughs> there's quite a bit to it. Yeah. So we do a spring training program. So that usually starts in March. This year's different with COVID-19. Um, you know, we've parked our Nangcheng. It's not even flying. Um, we're just flying the Yak right now, but in a normal air show year in March, we start our spring training. So spring training for us, in the air show world is identical to my every six month training on the 737. We go in and we review profiles for the aircraft. Um, we're looking at systems and procedures. There's a ground portion to it where you spend time in the books and then we go out and we fly those same procedures. So everything we do in airplanes on a professional level in the air show world and formation flying and most people I know in aerobatics and other forms of discipline, certainly the military uses this, is the same four, four step process every time. You're going to plan the flight. You're going to brief the flight. You're going to execute that plan and that brief. And then the most important part is a debrief. And that's where you get the lessons learned so that your next plan is better for the next flight, right? Yeah. 
So it all kind of follows this process. So we, we start off with emergency procedures and general handling of the aircraft, like literally going out and flying circuits, going out and doing engine failures over the fields and, and sitting in the airplane. Okay, I'm, I'm and never mind aerobatics, just I'm flying along. I've got an electrical fire. What are the steps that need to get done? Some steps are memory items. Some steps are not memory items. Uh, in, in every airplane is different, but we go through that. Once we've got that first few days of our spring training done where we've been going through the emergencies, we've been, been in the books, we're studying aerodynamic theory, aerobatic theory, and just literally the aircraft pilot operating handbook. Um, now we can start doing an aerobatic warm-up. And an aerobatic warm-up for me always starts the same way. It starts by going up and doing departure of controlled flight, more specifically spin and spin recovery. So there are three different types. NASA defines spins into three different re regimes. You have the normal spin, you have a steep spin, which is more nose down, and you have a flat spin, which is more closer to the horizon. And then those, of course, are times by two because you have them upright and inverted. And I'll spend a great deal of time going through all of those different spins and spin regimes in a controlled manner and then departing the aircraft into those manners because if you were to lose control of an aircraft close to the ground, you need to be able to recognize the symptoms of it very quickly so that you can recover from that. Otherwise, you could potentially have a problem further down the road. And this is all done at altitude. Like spring training is not like me down on the ground. Like spring training is like, like the heart deck's 2,000 feet. I'm usually between you know 5,000 feet and 3,000 feet, but I've got a lot of room in there. That's where spring training starts. So it starts off with departure of controlled flight and spin training. And in some other maneuvers, we do something called a continuous loop. So a continuous loop is perfect because you fly the aircraft on the buffet the entire way. Your airspeed's constantly decreasing. The loop, of course, gets tighter and tighter and tighter until eventually you're flying the loop on the buffet the whole way around. And this is great. Uh, one, on an aircraft uh, like the Nangchang, which has a heavy metal prop and has a, a lot of gyroscopic precession, or on my Yak-50, which has a lot of power um, through a big prop and not as heavy, has more asymmetric thrust. But either way, you're going to be using the rudder the whole time to keep straight. But more than that... You're learning where that stall angle of attack is on the airplane at a whole bunch of different speeds so you can feel it so that you don't get into a, a position where the aircraft's wing is losing lift. You recognize it before that. And many maneuvers we do in turnarounds at air shows at the edge of the show lines, oftentimes you are on the buffet to keep it inside of the defined airspace limits, right? Yeah, and that's, pulling, out, pulling out of the loop too, right? You could easily accelerate it stall. There. You could, yeah. And you never want to be anywhere close to that. So these low, these continuous loops we do so that we know where that is so that we don't get into a situation where we're riding the buffet at the bottom of a loop, which is like worst case. I mean, that not worst case. Worst case would be stalling and having an accident. But worst case for pilot planning would be having to use that buffet. That's called CL max or coefficient of lift max. And at that angle of attack, you literally have nothing else for energy out of that wing. That is all that it is going to give you. So you don't ever want to be close to that. So by doing these continuous loops, it builds the awareness of that. Now, I've been flying the Nangchang for a long time. And I would say I probably just aerobatic flights numbers. I'm probably over probably over a thousand aerobatic flights in that airplane, right? Like I know the airplane pretty well, but it doesn't matter. We go through the same process every year as if you're coming to a new aircraft because the only way to train proficiency is to be disciplined. Mm -hmm. And so we start off with that aerobatic warm-up. Once that's done, now we can start actually looking at aerobatic maneuvers. Now we can start looking at the show routine. So in an air show routine, I, myself, and most performers have a high show or a flat or a low show. And a flat or low show is for when the weather margins are too low to do vertical maneuvers. We'll have an idea for what we want to do in the routine, and we're going to start putting it together at altitude. And at first, 
your 12 minute routine takes you 25 minutes because you pause in between, you analyze where your gates are at, how is, how is the energy management of the aircraft, how is my airspeed, how is my altitude, what are the deck angles, was that maneuver properly flown? Maybe I haven't flown a slow roll in a long time and it's terrible. So it's going to take me more and more time to get that proficient. So once we've got those routines, sort of an idea of what we want to do, and once we've done our aerobatic warm-up of the basic maneuvers, the roll, the loop, the hammerhead, and the combinations of those things, now we can actually start building that routine and making it proficient. And before you see a flight at an air show, most performers have been through that routine for the high show, for example, anywhere between 80 and 120 times before you ever see it. Right. And yeah. that's, that's a process. And that usually takes me from March until the end of May. How often are you flying a, a week for that? Uh, if I can, when I'm at home, I'm doing usually two training flights a day, five days a week. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's proper training. <laughs> it's you know the funny thing is is that one of the things I didn't realize before I got into air shows is that it's another job. Yeah. It has another job. It has another level of responsibility, just like flying in the airlines. It has another level of maintenance requirements, just like a commercial operation, and it has another level of proficiency that requires you to stay on top of your game. And that requires you to train and train to practice all on a regular basis. And I'm I'm sure the uh, the business side of it and the logistics side of it too of Planning, yeah. planning your shows and how you're going to pay for your shows. And, That's a whole other yeah. side of the conversation. That's another thing yeah. that I don't think a lot of people really realize about air shows, that it is, in fact, a business. And it's not an easy business to get ahead in. I consider myself to be very, very fortunate that I was able to basically acquire a second airplane with the money that I made flying air shows for the first seven seasons. Uh-huh. I'm very fortunate, but uh, my wife, Lani, does the the business side of our operation. She is very fiscally responsible and she definitely missed her calling, but she runs the business side of things. But I owe a lot to her because, you know, she's the one who makes sure that we, we keep on track of our receipts and know what we're spending. And more importantly, you, so that you're not overspending on things you don't need to be overspending on. Like some things like maintenance and safety, I'll spend whatever it takes to make it as safe and as mechanically correct as I possibly can be. I will never skip out on those two things. But did you need to burn an extra 50 liters of fuel to go from A to B so that you could save five minutes on a flight plan. Right. That kind of a thing, right? And by doing yeah. that, being fiscally responsible and making sure that we were aligned with different sponsors that were providing, you know, at first I just wanted to have sponsors so that I could offset the cost, but eventually, I, you know, you start looking for sponsors that make sense, not just for patches on my flight suit, but, you know, are they decreasing their cost or bringing revenue into the business? Yeah, because you can get some sponsors that, take more effort and money to service them than they, uh, what they provide you. Yeah, those yeah. those are out there. So Lani's been really good at the fiscal. So we've been really fortunate, but at the end of the day, it is a business. And just out of interest, how does the, do air shows pay um, acts or are they covering gas, things like that? How does, how does that? Yeah, so work? it kind of depends on how you set it up. Um, I set it up with zonal fees. So I started doing that a couple of years ago because you talked to somebody about flying your air show and then I would quote them a price for the show, then quote them the cost, the transit fee. That's the price of me getting there and back um, and doing stuff like that. And I realized that you're better to like, you know, lose $50 here or make $8 there or more if you have one standard price. So someone's like, how much for this? And it's okay arbitrary number it's six thousand dollars for me to come out to manitoba and nanchang right and in there will be my fee that i charge to fly the air show and also incorporates transit fee now remember if you're transiting far enough you may get stuck due to weather that's happened to me many times Mm -hmm. and now that's coming you know that's paying for your hotels and it's paying to hang an airplane in a thunderstorm 
that's that's all covered in there. The fuel part of it is included. Like we fly out to a show and then they just fuel us as we're flying. And then we right. always take a full top up before we leave. Same thing with oil, you know, flying round engine airplanes, they go through oil. There's a couple of different oils that people use in round engines. We use Phillips 25W60 with the two engines that we have. So we make sure that they have the oil there. And then when you get to an air show, it's just like when I go to work. They've got a hotel. They've got a place for you to eat. They have transportation for you, or they give you rental cars. And that's all included in, in a contract that spells out when we'll arrive, what we're willing to do. If there's something I'm not willing to do, that'll be in there as well. Right. And, then, and then the fee plus GST. <laughs> right. <laughs> and when you first start out, are you obviously lesser fees as you get more in demand, you can probably charge more, but yes. do a lot of people do it basically at cost or losing money to kind of get their foot in the door. Okay. So when people start flying air shows and they're like 800 feet, um, most performers, if they are getting a fee, it's very low. It may be as little as $500 type thing. And they're getting their fuel cost covered to get there. They're being put up in hotels and given food and all those other things, but they're, they're essentially doing it to, to get their foot in the door. Um, Usually when you go to 500 feet, you know, you're getting maybe twice that. And then it kind of doubles and triples as you go. Um, as an unrestricted airshow performer, depending on the aircraft I'm in, and it's all, it's a free market economy, right? So if someone really wants the Nang Chang, um, they'll be willing to pay more than say maybe a show that already has three on static display because their friends have them. Not that that happens, but you know, as an example, right? Like if you've got a super decathlon and there's three super decathlons at that airport, they may not be willing to pay you a top fee. It is a free market economy. Um, but generally speaking, you get the highest rates for sure when you're unrestricted. You, if you're unrestricted in air shows, you make money. If, um, as an example, and I, I won't say how much, but as an example, in 2017, I flew 21 air shows. I made more money flying air shows than I did flying airliners. Wow. But yeah, I've yeah. also had years where I've lost $10,000 because of a maintenance issue. Right. Yeah. So you have to be really careful about how you take the money. It, in cool. some, and unfortunately, there are a number of people who don't know very much about air shows other than the fact that they want to be the weekend warrior hero at an air show. And it's not as common in Canada as it is in this U.S., but you do. there are people that will just fly air shows for free because they want to fly in front of their neighbors and their friends and everybody comes out and stuff like that. But generally, right. those people are not surface rated. Generally, they stay at 100 feet or maybe they go to 500 feet and then they realize, my Lord, I'm losing 20000 or $10,000 a year to do this. And they decide either they're going to become professional air show pilots like myself or they're going to uh, walk away from it. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that first half of the chat with Jeff Ladder. In the next episode, we talk about his new Yak-50, how he found it and brought it to Canada, and the process of learning to fly a completely new single-seat aircraft. Jeff even taught himself Russian so he could read the POH. As always, thanks for listening. Please subscribe and leave a review where you listen to your podcasts. You can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Flying British Columbia. You can find all the show notes, videos, and more at flyingbc.com.